Well, did, uh, did you have a good Christmas? Oh, I hope so. I hope you did. You know, Christmas is a time that focuses us on our relationships as we get time off from work, right? And as we gather uh, together with family, various family members, it focuses us on relationship. And um, we here at Ironworks Church and our family, we've been living in the book of Revelation. So this, this year, we're going to have Revelation in, we're going to have Christmas in Revelation. So this is Christmas in the book of Revelation. There actually is a passage in the book of Revelation about Christmas. It's the Christmas passage in the book of Revelation. And likewise, it focuses us on relationships and, in fact, focuses us on gender and gender distinction in relationship. Now, you know, when we talk about gender, it's something that I've written on now extensively. I can, say, I can actually say now I've written books, books in the plural, on, on gender. And as you, might as you might imagine, I've garnered a fair amount of criticism about uh, writing on this topic uh, for what I've written. And, you know, I remember one, uh, you can find this on the internet, someone who really was very angry. This was an LGBT activist very, very angry at what I was saying, and said, this is an awful book, this is Andre Otis, what a throwback to the 1950s, and on and on how bad this was, I, I, Andre Otis, he misquotes the Bible, misquotes the scriptures, and, and then my favorite line, my favorite line was this, when she says this, she says, you know, Andre Otis seems to think that every verse in the Bible is about gender, and I read that, and I thought, no, I don't think that every verse in the Bible is about gender. But I'll tell you something. When you have a book, and the book begins with God saying, let us create in our image, and then he creates male and female, and the rest of that book is given to those males and females about how to be in his image, you know something? Gender is going to come up. In fact, it's going to come up quite a bit, and it comes up here as well. So if you would stand with me as we read from Revelation chapter 12. And this morning, I thought it was particularly appropriate, since we are reading about the woman clothed with the sun, to have one of our sisters read the scriptures for us. So one of our sun-clothed women, Kelly Estes, is going to be reading for us. Kelly? From Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in the heaven saying, 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. Please be seated. So the dragon, the woman clothed with the sun, and the man-child. You know, it's a good thing to recognize here, as, uh, as Kelly read in the first verse there, that this is a vision that John had, the author of the book of Revelation. This is something that he saw. And that's important to keep in mind, that this is not John gathering various from various sources and source materials of whether it's contemporary apocalyptic literature or Old Testament references. It's not like he's composing something for us here. There, there are ways in which he makes allusions, but you got to understand basically what we're talking about is the vision, something that he saw. And that's important because it means that God is the ultimate author of what it is we were reading here, right? He is providing these visions and he's showing us something important. What he sees today is a great sign in heaven. A great sign in heaven. So after the great reveal of chapter 11, how the kingdom of heaven is actually going to come to earth. You remember that beautiful but bitter message when the scrolls finally open and John learns how the kingdom's actually going to come. He gets the answer. Then the book takes a step back And here in chapter 12, we begin to see the battle of history, the way that history proceeds and the way that this is going to be battled out in history, right? How it's going to take place, how it's going to play out. And God, with this vision, actually brings John all the way back to the beginning, right? He actually is bringing him, you can... To the, to the early chapters of Genesis, right? How can we see that? Well, who are the characters in this vision? You have the woman, you have the male child, and you have the great dragon, right? Well, who is that great dragon? Fortunately, verse 9, John tells us who the great dragon is. It's one of those wonderful places in the book of Revelation where John actually tells us who he's talking about, Right? Who is this symbolizing? And he tells us, verse 9, that old serpent, the deceiver of the world, thrown down to the earth. And where do we meet that old serpent? Well, we meet him in the Garden of Eden, deceiving the first woman, Eve, right? And we see this story there. Eve is there, and then she bears the man-child with greatly multiplied pain, from Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 3, greatly multiplied pain. You see that in verse 2? She cries out in her pain, and when she does bear the man-child, the dragon is there, the dragon serpent, ready to kill her son, and he does. He kills her son, Abel, through Cain. And then she has great hope because she has Seth, And you remember Seth, she even says, Seth is like a replacement for Abel. And Seth comes forth to overcome the dragon by calling on the name of the Lord. Do you see this? This Eve, the male child versus the serpent. 
this, this, this contest, this battle. It's a, it's a paradigm of history. That's what we're reading here. Revelation is taking us into the meaning of history. And that's what John, John's primordial references here are really giving us the foundations of life, and so it takes us into gender as well. And this explains why this particular story found expression in virtually every religion in the ancient world. Every ancient religion had some version, the tales might have been a little bit different, but they had some version of this story long before the book of Revelation was written. Not because they are the source material for Revelation, but because the, the paradigm, the archetype of history was the source material for them. So what do we see? If you're in Egypt, there's Isis, right? The goddess Isis, and she is on the run. She's pursued and has conflict with Set, the god Set, or as he was later associated in the second half of the first millennium BC with the great dragon Typhon. And Isis escapes to a desert island, and she is able to, to give birth to Horus, the sun god. And Horus is the one who comes forth to defeat the great dragon. Or if you're in the Ugaritic myth, there's Anat, right? Very bloody, Anat. But she is this woman goddess, and she's instrumental in the, in the, up, in the, in the coming to power of Baal. And Baal is the one who comes forth and defeats the seven-headed dragon, Leviathan. Or if you go to Greece, right? In Greece, there's Leto, and Leto is pregnant with Apollo, but she is in conflict. She's pursued by the great dragon, Python. And again, Leto escapes to a desert island and gives birth to Apollo, and Apollo is the one who comes forth to slay the great dragon, Python. So you see what we have here is an archetype of history. And that's also why scholars on this passage debate about who is being talked about here. Who is this great woman clothed with the sun? Really appreciate the communion people here who put this on. Clothed with the sun, just like this color. Who is this great woman clothed with the sun? And scholars debate this. Because if you look at the different details of the passage, and we didn't read all of them, we, we didn't read the whole chapter, but you read through the passage and you see some of the details lend themselves to people being a group. Like uh, this, this character seems to be a group. Or other, other details lend it to, be, uh, it to being an individual, like Eve, as we're talking about. So scholars go back and forth on this. And I think the answer is, I think the answer would be if John were here and we asked him, who is the woman clothed with the sun? I think the answer would be, she is many things. Because she certainly seems to be, this seems to be the story of Eve, right? But also, the woman is Israel. And, the, and Israel comes to, ha to have children. And through her children will come the vanquishing of evil. Will come the defeat of the serpent. And so when she is, when Israel is in Egypt, the children of Israel are besieged by the dragon. He's there to devour the man-child, right? And he does, actually, every man-child, because all of the male sons of Israel 
were thrown into the Nile by Pharaoh, ordered to be thrown into the fire. They were literally devoured by crocodiles. They were literally devoured by the dragon, right? But through the midwives, one was saved, the one, the male child Moses, who came forth, and then he grabbed the serpent by the tail, and it became his staff by which he ruled, by which he shepherded and ruled. So what we're seeing here is an archetype of history. What do these archetypes of history teach us? What do these, what do these give us as far as paradigms of gender, as I've been saying? Well, if we look at the passage, right? Verse 2, verse 5. The gift of the woman, the gift that's given to the woman, is the gift of giving birth of bravely bringing forth life and making a place for life. This is a distinction of woman. It's the privilege of woman to bear the child, to create the home for the life. That's what the name Eve in Hebrew means. Kayach. Right? Now, if you're a woman... And I'm saying, this is your distinction. You know, this is not the only thing that you do. I'm not saying this is all there is to you as a person. But this is the archetype of womanliness. To bring forth life, to make a place for life. And when there's tragedy interrupts this story, it's tragedy. You know, when there, there are times when there is miscarriage. There are times when there's an inability to bring forth children. And that's a tragedy. But if, the, if you're in that situation, if you're a woman who has had that difficulty or has had that tragedy, that interruption, you should know that God has still other ways for you to bring forth life. Other ways for you to still, it doesn't mean you're not a woman. You know? I think here of Nora Nicholas really made a place for life. Nora Nicholas was married to David Nicholas, who is the founder of the Acts 29 Network. If you know anything about church planting, Acts 29 Network was really the, the beginning in this country of church planting. Long before it was cool to plant a church. Long before it, it was an idea, a twinkle in the eye of Darren Pesnell to plant a church. You know. David Nicholas was the founder of Acts 29. If you want to talk about church planting in this country, you have to talk about him because he, he was what, what did it. Well, it wasn't just him. It was also Nori, his wife. And Nori could not have children. But, but because she couldn't have children, it, and she ended up focusing her attention on creating a place, a space, for them to mentor young church planters. And David ended up mentoring, mentoring scores and scores of church planters so that hundreds, hundreds of churches were planted. So you could even say Nori Nicholas gave birth to hundreds of churches in this country. It's giving life there. So God has different stories for each of us. He will, he will redeem these tragedies that we have when the devil does devour, to give life. But my, my 
hope, my, my desire for you is for you, just for you to understand this is your privilege of giving life, that, that, that this is your call. I don't, I don't want you to fall into this way of thinking that. It's like, okay, men are called to you know, do something important. And what I'm doing here in bearing children and making a place for life, it's just a side story. No, it's not just a side story. It is the story. This is the story. Okay, can, I mean, you look at this passage. Who's the star of this archetype? You know, is it Seth or is it Eve? It's kind of hard to tell, right? Who's the main character here? You know, it's very sad to me that there, there, there are not many places in public now where this can be affirmed for you, where the value of what you're doing can be affirmed. There's not many places where this is called what it is. The importance of what you're doing is, is, is given. Well, you'll, you'll get it here, or you'll hear it here, how important this is. She seems to be this woman's, the star. She seems to be the star, right? Well, actually, literally the star. She's clothed with the sun. So you who are bearing life, you are crowned with 12 stars. That's the woman. And the other side of the passage, right, verse 5, we have the male child who comes forth, the boy that she bears, to shepherd, to rule, right? And the grammar here in verse 5, it emphasizes the gender of this child, his maleness, because this is the paradigm of the male, to rule wisely and well. That is, to take responsibility for the vanquishing of evil. And this is, this is the male. Because that's what ruling is, you know, by the way. We, we kind of get hung up and think about, oh, really, you know, who's in charge and authority? Ruling is taking authority. That's what it means. If you're going to rule the way God wants you to rule, it is to take responsibility for the vanquishing of evil for the woman. It's to take responsibility to preserve the woman, to vanquish evil for the woman to flourish. So that tells you something, those of you who are men, right? If you want to be a man. Some of you are asking yourself, like, how do I become a man? Some of you young men. You, come and you become a man through this. You don't, you don't become a man by benching 225, by getting two plates on there and benching 225. That's not where you become a man. You become a man when you can take responsibility for others. That's when you become a man. That's what we're being shown here. This vision of gender is what gives us the New Testament Commands of gender distinction. Okay? It's the calls of gender to one another. And it is the archetype of history. Not because we're like lobsters, you know, we come from lobsters and stand up on our tails or whatever, but because we're like Seth and Eve. We're like Moses and Israel. That's our call. These are that to which men as men and women as women are called to aspire. Now, if you reject this story, if you say, I don't like that, I don't want to go in that direction, 
it will be a time, if, if society, if, if you have a people that reject this story, it will be a time of degradation. It will be a time of breakdown, as we see in our times. It will be a time of, the, the way Jesus put it was, when the love of many will grow cold. Jesus, one time, he said, you know, there's going to come a time when the love of many will grow cold. How do you know if you're in that time? Well, let me tell you something. If you have a society, if you have a time where the men take a woman and then do not take responsibility for her, they take a woman and they, have the, they feel like they have the option of leaving, they take a woman's body and then they go and do not take responsibility for that woman, <laughs> and that's like a choice, that's like an option that can be, then you are in a time when the love of many has grown cold. If you're living in a time when a woman will take a knife to her own womb and will take the life in her own body, and it's an option, it's like a choice that you could have, then you are living in a time when the love of many has grown cold. If you're living in a time when people will chop off their male and female body parts in answer to a psychological disorder, and that's considered a choice, that's considered an option to do that, you are living in a time when the love of many, even for the gift that God has given within them, has grown cold. Friends, to reject this paradigm of history, of of giving life, giving birth, and ruling is folly. For it is the archetype of goodness that moves history forward. It is the human story. So this is a sign. It's a great sign of creation for us. But you know, it's not only a great sign of creation, it's a sign of Christmas as well. It's what makes this the Christmas story. The dragon wants to defeat this story. He wants to end this story, so he strikes. And where does he strike? He strikes at the most vulnerable place, right? What's the most vulnerable place? The birthing of the man-child. What a, what a horrible nightmare of a scene. Did you, did you let this sink in as, as Kelly was reading us? I mean, giving Giving birth, those of you who have given birth, you know what you want. Those of you who have given birth, you know what you want when you're giving birth, right? You want clean, you want safe, right? You do not want a reptile at your feet about to devour the very one you're crying out in labor for, right? This is, this is why Darren uh, sometimes says, let's take a break from Revelation. You know, this is like the worst, talk about a birth plan, okay? This is a birth plan from hell, Okay, you have a baby, and, and at the t- and that time, you're, you're confronting dragons at the same time. Okay? It's why women have to be so brave. It's why femininity takes such bravery. But look at this. And of course, this is a place where you're vulnerable. It's where you're opening yourself to the world. Right? So a horrible nightmare of a scene. Why is the devil attacking at this moment? 
because, again, going back to the very beginning, this is where God promised a redemption. Back in the beginning, after we started this war, God came to Eve and he said, I'm going to make you a promise. I know this battle has begun between you and your man-child and the great serpent, but there's going to be an end to it. And the end is going to come through your body. The end is going to come through your very womb as you continue, Eve, in intergendered love with your husband. It's going to come through that. And the male child who comes forth from your womb, he is going to crush the serpent's head. He'll crush his head. And that promise Eve held on to. You could tell, because whenever she has a baby afterwards, she's always proclaiming something. She's already always ecstatic. She says, I've gotten a man from the Lord, you know? Or when Seth goes, I've gotten the replacement here. Because she was, she was expecting the salvation to come through her, her womb, through her man-child that comes forth. And that's what's going on, because she knew that that was... that child was going to crush the serpent's head. And the job ever after that, ever after Eve, was to continue on for men and women in intergendered love to bring forth the line of the Messiah. That's what they were being called to do. It was a very kind promise that God was making, a very quick promise actually too. Right in the midst of what we had done, he was there to make this promise again to her. But you know, Eve wasn't the only one who knew that because the serpent was there too. The dragon was there at the same time when that promise was being made and he knew that promise was coming. And so he knew if he was going to squelch this promise, if he was going to end this, end any defeat, end any of his defeat, and he was going to end the process of redemption, it would be at this point. And so ever after, he was poised when the man-child was giving birth, and he was poised at the first Christmas, right? Because this is what happened at the first Christmas, right? Mary gave herself. Finally, she was there at the end of the line to give birth to the precious life of the man. And she didn't have much to make a place for that life, but she used what she had, and that's, that's the Christmas story, right? Luke 2 very specific. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger. She made a place for him as she could. And the dragon stood there before the manger, ready to devour. And he did, actually. He slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem. Slaughtered all of them just to devour Jesus Christ. But Joseph was rescued from the dragon. I mean, Joseph, Jesus was rescued by Joseph's responsibility taking so that they fleed, literally fleed into the wilderness there. And so that was how, verse 9, the one came forth to rule with a rod of iron, to crush the serpent's head. The dragon is cast down. That is our redemption. That's how it took place. That's the story of Christmas, right? It's the ultimate fulfillment of this archetype. The thwarting of the dragon, the vanquishing of evil, and, and it happened. That's the message of Christmas for us. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we get so excited about Christmas. That's why those of us who have trouble stopping working at Christmas need to stop working at Christmas. They need to take a break. You and me, Dave. 
We need to honor this day because this is where it happened. This is where the, the, that moment of vulnerability was passed. Again, God used Joseph in taking responsibility to bring the holy family away from the danger. And that's where, that's, where, that's where evil is vanquished. That's why we make such a big deal about Christmas. That's why, you know, in our, in our staff meetings, we go around and take prayer requests. Every time we have a staff meeting every week, it's like, what can we pray for you? What can we pray for you? And all the different people give, on the staff give their you know, prayer requests. And about September or October, every year, it's like sometime in the fall, come around to Becky, Becky Olson, and say, what's our prayer request for you? And this is like September. She says, I'm really worried about the Christmas service. <laughs> I'm worried about, I'm kind of have a burden about Christmas Eve and how that's going to go and whether it's going to be good. The Christmas services, that's what I want prayer for. This is September. It's October. Why do we make this? She's, she wants it to be so good. Wasn't it so good? Those of you who are here Friday night, wasn't that beautiful? But we have, how many of you here were, were here for the first Christmas Eve service at Ironworks Church? First time. Wasn't that something? Wasn't that, wasn't that a wonderful way to usher in Christmas? We wanted to do that. Why do we put so much time into that? Because this is where evil was vanquished. This is where the one came forth to rule with a rod of iron and crush the devouring devil. And those of you who've had the, de- the devil devouring a story in your life, he, he made a promise right there. He said, I will restore the one who's ruling, said, I will restore what the devil has devoured in your story. That's why we worship. So we see the depth of the meaning in this paradigm, right? This archetype. But it's not only an archetype of creation. It's not only an archetype of Christmas. It's also the continuing archetype of our ongoing redemption. And Paul, the apostle, uses this paradigm afterwards, even after this, to call us to intergendered love. He does this in in one of the most puzzling passages in the New Testament. It's 1 Timothy 2, where Paul makes the statement, the woman will be saved through childbirth. And this has disturbed Generations of Bible readers, <laughs> generations of people have read this and said, what on earth is he talking about? What is Paul saying? Is he saying that, is he saying that women get, get, get redeemed through having kids? Women get saved through having kids? Is that what he's saying? In other words, is he contradicting the rest of the New Testament here and say that, you know, we don't get saved through faith and repentance? It's actually, is he contradicting himself? All the other statements in Paul, that the way that salvation comes is through our, our, it's by grace, we receive it by repentance and faith. Is he contradicting himself here? No. If you actually look in at, at what Paul is doing in 1 Timothy 2, he's, he's stepping into the paradigm. He's stepping into this same way, this same story. He's going back to the beginning, and he's carefully walking through it. And he's saying, you know, if they continue, Eve, if you continue, salvation will come through your womb. If you continue in intergendered love. And so the salvation will come forth through the childbirth. That's what he's saying. And Paul then uses that to reason 
to, to reason as to why things, why there should be gender distinction even in church among brothers and sisters in their relationship in church. That's what he does there. So that's the way he, he makes the argument. So Paul is getting his idea of man and woman from this same paradigm. And you know, that's a lesson for us. You are going to be pressed doesn't, doesn't matter if you don't want to be. You are going to be pressed by our times into deciding for yourself what makes a man and what makes a woman. You're going to have to. I, I know you want to go ahead, go and bury your head in the sand. Like, I don't want to think about it. You're going to have to. By your culture, you're going to be forced to decide, what do I think a woman is? What do I think a man is? Let me tell you something. If you try to get your definition from anywhere else besides the scriptures, you will end up being as sexist as anybody else. doesn't matter if you try not to be. If you don't get your definition from the way the Bible defines these things in relationship, you will end up being sexist. Just try it. Just go ahead and try it. But Paul is wiser than that. He says, no, I'm going to get it from the paradigm. And he's doing it to call us to intergendered love, to say these are the ways in which we love each other differently as men and women. So we want to apply this today before we come back to worship and worship at the table. You want to apply it? I would say be men and women. Right? You know, I see many young couples today and they are unprepared for this story that's about to unfold between them. They are unprepared for marriage. They're unprepared for, for children. You know, the educational system now doesn't prepare us for what's coming. And so they come in, and people, young people, they're shocked. They're shocked by what they encounter in marriage. They're shocked by what they encounter in having children. So how can we take this and be wise instead? Women, be women. Bring forth life. Bravely make a home for life. It's your privilege Prepare for that. And men, don't take that from them. How are you going to do that? Well, you know, this doesn't put you in, in a box as much as you might think because it's going to vary. It's going to vary with you and what you can do in your gifts. It's also going to vary with the needs of the man and the close men in your life. How does that look for you? Are you asking that question? I know one man who has a very stressful job, regularly overwhelmed by stress at his work. It's very difficult regularly. He comes home, and his wife will hug him for five minutes every time. After every shift he comes home, his wife hugs him for five minutes. What's she doing? That's her way of making a manger for her man. So it's kind of very but you can do it. Men, be men. Step forward to shepherd, to rule in the context of your close relationships. That means, as I said, take responsibility. And women, please do not spend all your energy defying that, but promote them to that so the two of you can vanquish evil together, right? Now, I know I need to say this, that 
in saying something like this, I'm not giving any kind of place for abuse. I'm not telling you to remain in an abusive relationship if that happens to be your situation. You know? And if you think that you're in an abusive situation, then come talk to us. Get some perspective about this. I'm not, in, in, and I know for some of you, it might even be hard to hear the difference here, but I'm not trying to say, you should give a place for a man's anger or his selfishness or uh, his pride in these, in these things. But I find that many women, what they want is the men in their life to be more responsible. They say, I wish he would just take more responsibility. And you just need to realize this, that there is no true responsibility without authority. You can't separate the two. The two go together. And that's what needs to be happening between you. So in these different ways, complete and keep on with your intergendered love because this is how our redemption has worked. Well, there's one more entity that the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, is, and that is the church. Right? There's other ways we read that passage and we say, wow, this is really the church. The woman clothed with the sun is the church, and her offspring proclaim this message of redemption. That's what we are. And so we are still pursued by the dragon. We're still preserved by God as we bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Craig so wonderfully brought it out in his uh, worship leading, he called forth that scripture from Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is what he's doing. That is what he's doing in your lives. Let's stand now and worship at the table.